This episode of Truth's Table is brought to you by InterVarsity Press, whose vision is to catalyze redemption, restoration, and revival in our divided and broken world. Follow IVP on Twitter at IVPress and visit IVP's website at www.ivpress.com. Welcome to Truth's Table, midwives of culture for grace and truth. I'm Michelle. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women and for Black women. So welcome to the table, sisters. See, how you doing? I'm doing, Michelle. And I don't know if all the people who are, are listening, you know, the listeners can see this, this fabulous background that you have, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep commenting on it until one magically appears uh, via, via Amazon, who unfortunately gets too much of my money. I'm a part of the problem. Um, I reckon, you know, you recognize when you are a part of the problem. Like, not only do I have a problem, I am a part of the problem. You know, problem. owning it. That's the first step. <laughs> My problem is that I'm owning too much. That that's that might be the problem. Michelle. How are you doing today? All right. St. Louis is hot and heating. We've got the humidity going on, sis. We got the wild parties and festivals. You know, Missouri doesn't believe in COVID-19. And that may be why we now have the Lambda variant. So um the Lambda. This is like the entire pandemic conference. This is the entire <laughs> I've had enough. I've had enough. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm locked down in this room. That's why I had to get a cool background because I'm doing nothing else but <laughs> hiding from COVID. <laughs> uh, and you look and you and you know because I have like an American sense of geography. Like most of my life, I, I it was hard for me to place St. Louis. All right. So whenever you talk about St. Louis, I'm like, St. Louis is the South. <laughs> like St. Louis is it's hot. So I'm I'm just coming to terms with you know. St. Louis, where we are. So. We're that section of the world that's both extremely hot in the summer and full of ice by February. So I don't know if we're special or scared. <laughs> However you want to reframe that, however you want to talk about it. It's, it's, your, it's your land and you go ahead and love it. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited today because we have, uh, it, it's two of us chatting. It's, it's not just me and Michelle chopping it up, y'all. Um, we do have a guest today. Phil Allen is with us. And Phil, welcome to Truth's Table. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. We're looking forward to this. Well, we are excited uh, to have you here today, and I'm going to tell our, our listeners a little bit about who you are, and um, and I, I think they really are going to be blessed by um, what you have to share with us today. So Phil Allen Jr. is a PhD candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he is a, a panel center for Black Church Studies Fellow. As an emerging ethicist and theologian, his research integrates Black church theology and praxis, understanding and healing racial trauma. Y'all know I care a lot about that. And theology and ethics of justice and racial solidarity. He pastored for 13 plus years. Give this man his flowers. They are yet due. Okay. While he yet lives. 
so he can enjoy the fragrance that they give, okay? And is now a speaker, author, poet, and a documentary film producer. His short film, Open Wounds, premiered in Los Angeles in January 2020. And he also authored his first solo book, Open Wounds, a story of racial tragedy, trauma, and redemption. And as a former personal trainer and Division I college athlete, he has a passion for mentoring colleges, college and professional athletes. He enjoys uh, being a guest chaplain for college and professional sports teams. And he's the founder and president of the nonprofit Racial Solidarity Project. That's a fabulous and interesting uh, bio. Welcome to the table, Phil. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Let me get a seat here. <laughs> take, take, take a seat and, and, and rest your nerves. Rest yourself. Yes, and you you are in the rare company of the men that we have at the uh, table. So you know, you know, you got to show up. You got to I'm come coming, correct. I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> I'm coming. Which all women bring to the meal? To the Normally, meal. I got to stand. You know, as part of a, a reparation. You know. <laughs> But we are so, so pleased to have you. Um, I am in, in my head when I'm thinking about your PhD candidacy. I'm like, are you ready to be called Dr. Phil? You know, have you prepared for that? How are we happy? You know, what's funny is my nickname in college was Dr. Phil. And I'm going to stop right there. Uh-oh. For the second half, I'm going to stop. All right. And I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. A buddy, a teammate of mine, gave me that nickname, and I laugh about it to this day because I, I hadn't, I never thought about pursuing a PhD. <laughs> I know. Did you ever think that you would pursue PhD work? I mean, you pastored for thirteen years. That that's a PhD all in itself. I want to make plain Man. as a pastor who's coming up on one year. I'm like, tell tell me all your wisdom. How you get through? How you get through? Um, oh. And also thinking like. Did you go right into thinking, all right, I'm going to get this, the highest terminal degree in my field? How did that come about for you? You know, when I, first of all, I never came out here to California to be a pastor in the first place. Wow. I came out here to be, to do some wild and crazy things, to be honest. I had different intentions. Uh, I wanted to be an actor for one, but I wanted Mm -hmm. to enjoy LA. Um, A couple years in is when I got this nudge from, from God to um, get my life together. You know, I grew up in the church. Uh, I'm, I'm a church kid, AME, Georgetown, South Carolina. And oh, um, I tell people when I graduated from high school, I graduated from, from church. So I didn't go to church for almost 10 wow. years. Mm. I was just out there. But when I came to California, I, um, and I, I answered the call to ministry in 05. Again, I, had no, I, didn't know, I didn't know what that meant. I just knew I was supposed to do something for God. And I went uh, a couple years in through mentorship. I got my bachelor's, went back to school and got my bachelor's. And um, that's when I started thinking about it because I love teaching. I love engaging, uh, even more so than preaching, because I love the back and forth. I love the dialogue. I like to hear what people are thinking and what's going on in their minds and um, what what they're reflecting on. And so I started talking to one of my professors and he gave me some advice. And then once I went for my master's in 2015, that's when I knew I was going to pursue the uh, the PhD, and so that's when you know went on that track, and the rest is history. Now, halfway through, I ask myself every year, "What am I doing here? Mm-hmm. Why, why why am I doing this? Am I a glutton for pain? Stuff like that." 
<laughs> so that's, that, that, that's a pretty consistent PhD student question. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I got nothing to prove. Why am I here? <laughs> or why, am, yeah, why am I here? <laughs> As you were just sharing, Phil, I was thinking about, um, yeah, you talked about what it means to, to grow up, you know, a church kid. And then you use this expression, um, which I don't I've, I've only heard black people use black Americans really use this expression. This I was out there and uh, maybe other people use it. But I I don't think I've ever heard other people say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like that's real in group. <laughs> and but I also feel like there's a testimony in there. Um, and obviously for people who who listen to Truth's Table, who they themselves, maybe maybe they got a foot in out there right now. Or they have um, a loved one that they're praying for and thinking about who is out there. Is, the, is there a testimony under there? How do, how do we go from out there to up in here? Mm, how much, how much, how, how long we got? <laughs> how long we got? Man. We'll stop you. You'll know. Okay. I, you know, when I, when I graduated from high school, I went to A&T. The North Carolina A&T State University, Aggie Pride for any Aggies out there. Um, and I played ball. And I tell people I enjoyed every all the perks of being an athlete. All the perks of being a Division One college athlete, playing on national TV, being in the magazines, starting all four years, just being out, you know, being, you know, one of the faces of the team. And so with that came you know, my, my biggest struggle was uh, women and alcohol and partying. Um, really, it was, it was women and alcohol. I had an addiction to alcohol um, once I got to college. That was about 14 years of my life. Um, and then women. I just, I was never really taught how to date, love, and nurture relationships. So I just, you know, did my thing as I, as I learned from the old heads that went before me. And so I, I lived that life uh, for 17 years from freshman in height in college to 31. And that's all I knew, whether it was in North Carolina, DC, Maryland area, New York for a couple of years, for two and a half years. And then LA, that's what I lived. Um, partying, I, I used to tell people at my lowest before I got saved, in 96, at my lowest, when I was depressed, my diet was partying, alcohol, weed, and sex. That was my diet. And I lost a lot of weight. Um, people thought I was on drugs, like hard drugs, because I'd lost so much weight. Um, I didn't even know it, because once, once, they took, once basketball was taken away from me, who am I? What is my identity? And um, so you're out there searching, you're just living, enjoying, you're medicating, actually. And so for anybody that's out there, we use that term out there, um, or praying for someone, don't try to force them back. You have to simply be an example, be a model that you're a safe place that they can come to when they hit that rock bottom. I believe in rock bottom. Let me tell you, that rock bottom, we, we, we avoid it, we don't like it, but that is the turning point in my life. Yeah, every every time I've turned the corner and, and done something, there's been a rock bottom or felt like a rock bottom. Um, in 2014, when I was separated, 2015 began the divorce process. That was a rock bottom. That was a painful season of my life. Um, 
I also experienced church hurt during that time. Um, the way I was, my situation was handled, the way I was treated. Um, it altered how I preached and ministered. It also gave it an empathy for people going through divorce, which we've presented as the unpardonable sin in the church. That's right. Right? That's um, so I became a safe place for people who went through or going through a divorce or even considering it. To, to, I never tell people not to or, or do it, no matter what. I, I never tell them either way. I ask them, what do you want to do? And then I help them understand the, the, the implications of their decisions either way. And then I walk with them through that. So it, it, you know, those rock bottoms are, are real and they are life changing, right? Uh, we, we, can, we can almost say that the rock bottom for the early church community was Jesus on the cross. But we know the implications oh, yeah. of that. Mm -hmm. Right? So Paul's rock bottom was on the road to Damascus. Yeah, he couldn't yeah. be blind. Mm -hmm. Right? We can go mm -hmm. on and on. So you know, that was, you know, I've, I've had several rock bottoms, and, and um, being out there for me uh, was God removing the hand. Well, I can't say removing the hand of grace because <laughs> I'm still here because of grace. I, I should have been, I should have been right. gone, like literally dead. Um, but, but by the grace of God, God, God drew me back. Uh, I went home to South Carolina and kind of reset and went back to that very church that I said I graduated from and knew nothing about the Lord. I just knew I needed to sit in that space. Wow. Wow. All right. That story yeah. of um, just knowing that you have become a partner, minister, um, really an, an advisor for people going through marital situations um, and thinking through this idea of rock bottom. I really relate to that. Um, more to come. That's, you know, later, later episode. But I, I truly also feel this sense of you communicating a rock bottom that happens to a community in, yeah. in your documentary. Mm, and yeah. that's a rock bottom that didn't just happen to the town. I love your intro. Your family needed healing. Um, yeah. and open wounds. Um, Phil's documentary, the intro involves um, some beautiful poetics and then some hard hitting facts. Your family needed healing, but so too did the full Georgetown. And I, I'm wondering how that rock bottom that happened to y'all, a rock bottom that was really put you under the rock um, in that trauma, how did you decide? to tell a story that was not just the truth about a community, but this is your own yeah. family story. What moved you um, to tell your own story? Great, great question. Um, I watched another documentary called Always in Season mm. at Sundance a couple of years ago. Now, again, talk about doing a PhD. Who would have thought I'd be in Sundance watching film all week as a class for, for a PhD program? <laughs> So I'm in Sundance watching this film, Always in Season, and a lot of the details, young man gets hung, well, his body was found hung from a swing set in Bladensboro, North Carolina, about seven years ago, eight years ago now. And um, a lot of the details reminded me of my grandfather's story, of, again, of, of, in terms of what I've heard. And I went back to this forum. I was there with an organization called Windrider. Uh, they bring, they curate space for um, Christian uh, organizations, seminaries, but also um, PWIs to come together and talk about films through a theological lens. It's a powerful, powerful experience for me. 
And I shared the story for the first time in that form. And you could hear a pin drop. And a lot of documentarists were in that room and they said, you need to tell this story. Now, I had planned on writing a book and I, I never, never thought about doing a film until Sundance. And so I, I called my, my friend L. Michael Lee, the director um, of, of Open Wounds. And I said, bro, I said, uh, do you want to do this story? And I told him the story. And he, within a few seconds, he said, absolutely. He said, matter of fact, we've got to do this story. And so my number one thing was to honor my grandfather's name. That was the number one goal, to honor my grandfather's name. And you talk about the community you know, hitting this rock bottom. I don't know if we've recovered as a, community, as a black community yeah. or as a, as a community as a whole. I don't know if we've recovered because when I shared my, my film back home, there were several people that told stories in the audience of what happened to their family. They had never shared it. Matter of fact, when I, when I showed the film, there's always some older black person that shares a story of what happened to them that was never told. Their uncle, their grandfather, their father went missing and they, they don't know all the details. And so this kind of brought life to that for them. So I don't know if my hometown's ever recovered because there's so many secrets and people just kind of you know brush it under the table and just keep it moving. And we just pretended everything was okay, but I don't know if we've actually healed because we've never really addressed the past back home. Yeah, yeah. And, and how can you heal from what you won't whisper? Mm, you, know, you, won't, you won't even whisper, let alone uh, talk it through, let alone expose it. You know, I was thinking there's a passage in um, uh, Luke fourteen twenty eight says, "Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, uh, won't you sit sit first? and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it. And so certainly documentaries are going to require, you know, the resources and the time, but I'm wondering how you did the process of counting the emotional cost for yourself. <laughs> I don't know if I did. And, and, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I did it in, initially. I think I did it mm. after we started because I was so yeah, yeah, excited. I, I was so excited to tell the story. And having um, L. Michael Lee a part of it, knowing his professionalism, his integrity, his skill set, um, I was even more excited to tell it, right? It wasn't until I started doing the interviews back home. When we went back home to South Carolina, we did a fundraising and we got some financial resources. But when we went back home to South Carolina, being in the spaces and now seeing my hometown in a different light. You know, the town clock is seven minute walk from my my house where I grew up in, one of the houses I grew up in. And that's where they sold the slaves. That's where they auctioned off the slaves when they came in um, off the boat. Well, you're not thinking about that growing up. You don't talk about that growing up. But doing this film, I had to now process that. Going to the location, the last location my grandfather would have been before he died. Someone told me where he got on the boat to go across to this little island. And I stood there. I passed by that location all my life growing up and never knew my, that was the last place my grandfather was alive. So I got goosebumps talking about it right now. But that's when it started to hit me. And, you know, I had some moments where I broke down and, and it was very emotional. Um, and I, so I didn't count the cost initially. Uh, I, I wish I had gone back. That's one of my favorite verses. I wish I had read that before I started this, but during the process, 
is when I started to count the cost. Um, and then you talk about, you know, Lamont, when he was editing, he had to watch the film. He had to listen to it over and over and over again. He said he had to put it away wow. and take a break for a day or so because it was so overwhelming. Mm. Um, and then the mm. scene with my dad was, was the, the climax for me emotionally. Um, that had never happened in our lives. We've never had a conversation like that before. Mm. I mean, that, that was, that's the height of our relationship, that scene. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. So and for me, it was worth it, though. It was worth it yeah. to go through this process. That's exactly what I was thinking, um, that cost counting and moving into what looked like a truly heartfelt, maybe even um, sort of out of nowhere, kind of un unscripted. Oh, yeah. um, and so that, that work was, was really moving, was really meaningful. Um, we are so, so glad for your willingness to open up, answer questions, and we cannot wait to ask you a few more questions about Open Wounds, a story of racial tragedy, trauma, and redemption by Phil Allen Jr. Y'all stick around. We got to scoot off and pay some bills for a little bit, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Hey, y'all. It's Michelle from Truth's Table with news from InterVarsity Press. Our listeners can save 30% on Drew Jackson's new book, God Speaks Through Wounds, when you order at ivpress.com using promo code TRUTH21. God Speaks Through Wounds by Drew Jackson, a pastor and poet who explores the first eight chapters of Luke's gospel in a new poetic register. These poems faithfully declare the gospel story and all its liberative power from the voices of the marginalized. Pastor Drew Jackson is the founding pastor of Hope East Village in New York City. He writes poetry at the intersection of justice, peace, and contemplation with a passion to contribute toward a more whole and just world. Here's a taste of what you will find in this powerful collection of poems. In the days of empires and puppet regimes, God speaks. Through wounds rested and discarded because they were unviable, this is what they do. The Romes, the Babylons, the USAs, the men tossed to the side as detritus, what they've deemed unfit to be utilized. But God speaks through wounds, birthing prophetic utterances, the object of public scorn, given the power to name the happenings of the Lord. Elizabeth is her name. Say her name. It is she who will be the one through whom the covenant is kept. That's a poem that the collection is titled for, God Speaks Through Wounds. Don't forget, Truth Tables listeners can save 30% on this work, God Speaks Through Wounds, by Pastor Drew Jackson when they order at ivpress.com. Use the promo code TRUTH21. That's promo code TRUTH21 at ivpress.com for 30% off the book. Welcome back to the table, sisters, and everyone in standing room. We are so pleased to be at the table with a documentarian, PhD candidate, former pastor, Bala, 
I mean, a chaplain for sports teams. I don't even know if we have time to get into that, but I just know how you count (laughs) professional athletes. My goodness. Um, But Phil Allen Jr., we're very, very pleased to have you at the table. We were just talking about counting the cost. And you mentioned how it was production that really helped you to start figure out, um, start to figure out what exactly you, you were risking, everything you were pouring into. You're the narrator of this documentary. You're not being interviewed so much. Um, as you're discovering, right? You're learning from the founders of the Trauma Study Center. You're learning from so many other voices, historians, and the beautiful singing of the one gentleman that was interviewed at the beginning and end. Oh, haunting, gorgeous, and so black. So black. <laughs> you, you, know what's, you know what's funny about that scene? I asked him in the moment. I didn't plan that question. I said, if you could, because he was a little brother of my grandfather. He was like a little brother. And I said, if you could sing at his funeral right now, mm. what would you sing? Do you know he, it took him two seconds and he went right, almost like he had thought about it before. Yeah. And he went into it. And I got wow. goosebumps right now. But it, was it blew me away. I just want to give a little bit of background about that that particular scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what an amazing thing to just happen on the spot there. Um, I'm sure there were so many other things. Yeah, the documentary itself is under an hour. How did you choose which voices, which segments would go into the final cut? Well, I, I wanted to break it up in those three um, sections in the title. The tragedy. I wanted to talk about the tragedy, so we wanted to get some context of the home, our hometown, and um, what was going on at the time of my grandfather's murder. Uh, I wanted to get a section on trauma, which is my grandmother's trauma, and particularly my father's trauma, and then uh, the redemption. I would represent the redemption part of it, um, just my life in general. The fact that I can actually, the fact I tell people, the fact that I don't hate white people. Um, I, I will I will disclose this. I recently shared with a lot of my white friends, close white friends, that I'm struggling liking white people right now because of all that's been going on. I don't hate white people, and I got dear friends. My one of my uh, mentors is, is white, older white man. So I, I, I people I love dearly, but I'm struggling with liking white people in general. That was earlier this year, and still wrestle with some things. Um, but I kind of lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, All right. But but I represent redemption. I represent mm-hmm. redemptive the, the fruit of redemptive prayer. I say in the film, mm-hmm. my father's prayer when I was in my mother's womb. He said. Mm-hmm. So that's how we went to the who we would put in there. The, the tragedy. Who could yeah. tell us about what happened? Let's talk about the trauma, particularly my grandmother's trauma. Um, the strongest woman I know. <laughs> And Had to be. strongest human I know, probably. <laughs> and then me uh, representing redemption. And what did that look like um, moving forward? You know, I um, I don't think we're giving more away. I think people will still want, will definitely check it out. And I, I, I uh, lead um, racial trauma processing and healing groups. Mm. And as I was watching it, I was thinking about... Um, just the power of storytelling, being able to say your own story um, and and how you position yourself as the expression of redemption 
as you are telling this story as well. I just think it's um, cathartic, profound, therapeutic, um, and so important. But there's a there's a, a scene in here which to me is like the the big tap on the shoulder scene, and that's when you are talking with your father, and, and you know you are Phil Allen Jr. So you talking to senior. All that's like full circle. And you talk about, you talk to him directly face to face. These two black folk, real black folk, face to face conversation about what it means to have inherited the traumatized parent, to have inherited, um, to be the recipient of the pain of the parent Um, and and the anger that comes for that. I I just want to know. how you got yourself ready for that moment and what happened after it? Great question. Um, that was years in the process, in process. Um, he and I had had several conversations leading up to that. Um, never, never to that depth, but one conversation prior to that, I was able to tell him that there was a time when I hated him. And that was hard to say, but I needed him to, to know that truth. That's how I felt. So we had had some little minor, little short conversations, small conversations. It was like baby steps. And that was like the big, the big conversation that needed to happen. Um, I didn't know if he was going to actually, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if he was going to show up. Because we flew to Minnesota, because he lives in Minnesota. He and my, my uncle, his brother. I didn't know if he was going to show up. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if he, if he would want to stop it because it was too emotional. Uh, I didn't know if we would get into it if I said certain. I didn't know what was going to happen, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I was prepared to allow whatever was going to happen to happen and not force it to be what I wanted it to be. That was the biggest thing for me. Not Don't make this conversation, this interview with your father, what you want it to be for your film, right? Don't, don't make your father um, a character yeah, that don't you use want him. him to play. Don't manipulate. Let it be what it's going to be. Fortunately, my father, I asked one question and he talked probably for like 10 minutes before I could get another question. It was like he he couldn't wait to have this conversation because I don't think he's ever had this conversation in his life about his father. I don't think he's ever really, he didn't know until he was 37 anything about his dad. His mom didn't say anything to him until he was 37. So he's never had this conversation. For him to, to have conversations with his son about his father and to just unpack in real time was healing for him. I could, I could, my father, the light that I could hear in his voice and see in him today is very different than I, what I've ever seen from him in my entire life. He's a few years sober. Praise God for that. And I'm proud of him. You know, but he's always carried heaviness and anger just on 10 all his life. Can you imagine carrying that in your body all your life? That's who I inherited as a father. That's who my mother inherited as a husband. And I never could understand why does this man put his hands on my mom and I couldn't save her. That's the other strong, one of the other strongest people I know my mom. I couldn't save her as a kid. The day I became a man, this little side story, the day I became a man, was when I was 14 and I stopped my dad from hitting my mom for the first time in my life. But that was still trauma. Right. Absolutely. Having to even do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So yeah. 
I think the baby steps leading up to this conversation helped. And I was, and me being prepared to allow whatever was going to, if, if we got two minutes from him, be okay with two minutes. And I think that helped me, helped prepare me for, um, for that conversation. Amen. And what an incredible background story to this convo. I mean, bringing the crew to Minnesota, sitting down, taking the risk to say, I won't script this. I won't manipulate. You know, I won't set the scene. Um, and y'all truly, uh, it was a blessed conversation to watch. I, I wonder, you, you described the trauma of manhood, right? The trauma that is directly involved with you protecting. And this this is communal as well. Um, I In some of the work I do with community organizing, out on the streets or in um, different halls of legislation, protecting people through, through our voices and our stories of past hurt. We are experiencing some trauma even when we protest. We're experiencing some trauma even when we stand up and say, our Black brother, our Black sister who was murdered by police should be alive. We're absorbing that mm-hmm. and yet fighting it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what is your pastoral heart um, advising people? How are you traveling through this extremely complex experience of both experiencing and knowing that there's trauma and fighting it, even though that fight may traumatize you as well? Yeah. Um what I try to do is get people to understand that God cares about the whole self. Mm-hmm. And I think we do a poor job in the church overall with having a trauma and resiliency informed theology. We don't know how to talk about how's the body play into this. Come on. You know, so much about reason, um, logic. And that's a Western European, you know, perspective anyway, but that's another podcast. <laughs> Well, um, so, most of it. <laughs> so, so what I do is, I had to learn my own how to how to how to. I had to learn about my own body and what my body is telling me and what it needed. So I run four times a week. That's activism for me. I stretch. Okay. I I take my Sabbath seriously. I I eat as activism. No, I, I enjoy what I eat, don't get me wrong. But I also understand that I am putting in, I'm, I'm feeding my body in such a way that it allows me to do the things that I'm supposed to do to cause change in this culture in the way that God has wired me to do so. So I can't put junk like I used to in my body because it may take energy away from me. I had a, a dear, dear friend of mine, a dear sister, uh, Dr. Dawn Henderson, and she said this phrase one day. I did a, a meeting, a virtual uh, showing of my film, and she was on the panel with me at the Duke University. And she said, breathing is activism for Black people. We've never really been taught how to breathe. So everything for me that, that t- attends to the, the trauma in my body, I see as activism. So I'm not just working out because I want to feel good. I'm not just working out because I want to look good. I'm working out. That's a form of activism. My Sabbath is activism. So getting people to pay attention to what their, their, their body is saying. Our bodies have memories. Our bodies have knowledge that, the, that reason 
may not necessarily grasp fully, but our bodies do. And so helping people to understand that, that God cares about the whole self and not just what you think about, what, what your Christology is, not, not just what, what your pneumatology is, right? God cares about, now how is the spirit uh, impacting you physically too? How is the spirit bringing healing to you? That, that the verse of the spirit is supposed to comfort us, right? Well, what does that feel like? Mm-hmm. Not just in an abstract way. What does comfort of the spirit feel like in my body? Guess what? When I run eight miles, 10 miles, I need the spirit to comfort me them last three, four miles. Hey, hey now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be calling on them by, you know, 0.2 miles at the top. Exactly. So, yeah. So, so yeah, that's my counsel. I try to get people to understand, and it's interesting being a personal, tra- a former personal trainer. I didn't understand it back then, but now I can incorporate some of the things I've learned. That you know, God cares about the whole self, including mm-hmm. what's going on with my body. Well, you know, Phil, even thinking about our time, to, our short time together today, and and the documentary, the theme of the body is just so present right Mm -hmm. so it's it's present as the um the the place of our own um self-betrayal and um exploitation and abuse Mm -hmm. um it's it's present in this uh, mystery narrative of a black man's body who was dehumanized and that coroner's report uh the lies of it so there's so many layers of the body and the body towards this, you as the redemptive character, right? The, the son of redemption, the body now uh, being, being, um, being loved, being cared for, uh, um, and even the body kind of blocking the blows of injustice and mistreatment. Um, and so it's just so important, right? When we think about um, having a full bodied theology, right? And that, and that these bodies um, are a part of the, the glorified redemptive narrative um, God is doing something with it. Um, I'd love to hear you talk. I mean, you've—I've heard you mention uh, to us both your mother and your grandmother as the strongest people that you know, and we—we we love uh, Grandmama adoration here. <laughs> I'd love for you to tell us more about about your grandmother and her impact on you. Let me—I'm uh, gonna try not to get too emotional. Um, because who I am today, um, I'm, I'm not who I am without her. And before she passed, I remember going home one day and telling her, Grandma, everything that you did, everything that you prayed over me, this is your fruit. The ministry I have in South Carolina, this is your fruit. Now, both of my grandmothers, I'm very, very close to, or was. But my, my father's mother, um, I never understood why she was so tough on everyone. Why was she so um, sometimes, honestly, difficult to, to get along with, to be around a lot of times. But she would give you the shirt off her back. And a big part of that was she was so protective and she wanted everyone to be okay. That there was a controlling aspect to her. Um, but I didn't understand that growing up. It was just more frustrating until I got older and got away and could reflect on. But my grandmother was doing sit-ins in the 40s. My grandmother would go and sit in white restaurants, her and she'd take her brother, and she would lead the way. She'd be like, y'all scared? 
if you're scared, don't come now, y'all. And she would go and sit in, no cameras, no footage. Right. And she would leave, knowing she wasn't going to get served, and she would leave, and she would come back maybe next week and do it again. She was, she didn't play. So I never understood why, if she smiled, that was a, that was a surprise to me. If she laughed, you know, oh, it's a good day. But she, I didn't know that she was carrying 1953 with her the whole time. Every time I see a wife or a mom break down because their son was shot and killed unarmed, you know, another black mom, grandmother, son, I mean, uh, wife, sister, I think about my grandmother. And my uncle told me and told us, he said in the film, you know, she hate, she carried the hate towards white people the rest of, to, to her grave. And I believe that. Mm. But this woman raised four kids alone. Mm. She remarried and then he died of cancer. And she never got married after that since the 60s. But she raised four kids. She raised two, two of her sons were, were drafted in the NFL back to back years. So we see brothers who play in the NFL and NBA. My family did that in the 70s. All right. My uncle was a Heisman candidate for Michigan State in 1971. My other uncle played for the Minnesota Vikings in the 70s in the Super Bowl. And my dad was supposed to be the best of all three. But he had me in college. So I come from that lineage. And, then, and, and all three of them, people say, they're your grandfather. Your grandfather was all three of them wrapped in one. That's how phenomenal of an athlete he was. Mm-hmm. Which, which then on his death certificate says he fell off the boat and just basically drowned. And he was a phenomenal swimmer in the Navy, served his country, but he just fell off the boat and drowned. Okay. And so my, my grandmother, she raised these kids. You know, my aunt was a pharmacist. She went to Howard. She was a pharmacist in the D.C. area. She raised her grandkids. She served in her church, like relentlessly. I'm talking about like one of those grandmothers that when she got... Uh, time to donate something. She got a fundraiser going on. You better give because she ain't going to stop bothering you until you give something. <laughs> She's coming for you. But she, that's just who she was. She served. She would give you a shirt off her back, um, but she carried, it, it was in her posture, in her facial expression. And I was able to tell her before she passed, I said, Grandma, my ministry in, in California, because we had one of the biggest young adult ministries in California, probably in the country, but definitely in California at the time. I said, this is part of your fruit, brother. This is part of your fruit. Thank you. And you could just see this peace come over her when I told her that. And that, that I'll never forget that moment. You know, when she wow. came to visit here in California. That was a gift for me for the first time. She came to visit California and spent some time with her grandson. And she told me mm-hmm. she couldn't sleep. And I was able to lay hands on her that night when she stayed with me. And I prayed over her. The next morning, she said, you know, son, I haven't slept that well in years. That's my, that's who my grandma was. And that's that spirit, right? I, I felt so deeply when you talked about your daddy's prayer, about the spirit that he did not want to pass on to you. What, what he was naming trauma, the spiritual warfare of trauma, but what was the result? A Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit that allows you to pray peace and then for a body to receive it. That, that is a beautiful legacy. Mm. And we're so thankful, uh, so thankful that that legacy can point directly to a strong Black woman who the Lord 
wanted to wrap up in their arms Absolutely. as a baby girl. Yes, that's Thank a beautiful you. thing. Um, you talked about her smile and that childlikeness, um, the really true happiness for me there. That That is so powerful to me. And it makes perfect sense, Dr. Christina, that we have Phil at the table because Black women deserve as many flowers uh, as the people that they raise and care for. So what a beautiful story. We have a million more questions. Like I said, I really want to know how to become chaplain of the Cardinals in St. Louis. So, you know, I need some advice. (laughs) (laughs) But we do want to find out how to keep in touch with you. Um, We intentionally didn't go over the full premise of the documentary because we want you to let us know how we can catch it. So please let us know how we can keep in touch, follow you on the socials and how we might access your work. On, well, for the film, you can um, go to openwoundsdoc.com. And that's attached to my website, philallenjr.com. But openwoundsdoc.com. Um, you can see the film there. You can actually click on the link. It'll take you to the Vimeo um, to, to rent it for 24 hours and watch the film. Uh, I think it's great to, to watch it with family um, and have a discussion afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. You can follow me on Facebook, Phil Allen Jr., uh, Twitter, Phil Allen Jr., at Phil Allen Jr., and IG, Phil Allen Jr., IG. Very creative, right? Uh, <laughs> I need to keep it simple. <laughs> so, yeah, you can follow me there. Um, my book, Open Wounds, um, it released February, uh, this past February. So it's on Amazon.com, it's on BarnesandNoble.com, or you can go to FortressPress.com. Most people go to Amazon. Um, so you can purchase the book. It tells more of the story. Um, it, it gets, and then I, I segue, I'm able to segue into some of the things that we talked about with trauma, um, racism, white supremacy, um, and, and, and some, some very practical things on moving forward. What does racial solidarity look like? Um, I use solidarity more than I use reconciliation. Um, solidarity to me is, is a stronger word uh, after being challenged by one of my professors a few years back. And so I've settled on that. And um, so we talk about that in the book as well. Um, but it's gotten great response, great reviews. And so, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm sure our sisters will have so many more questions for the soon to be good doctor. We want to thank everyone who joined in for taking a seat at the table this week. And let's continue the conversation. Tweet us your thoughts about this episode using the hashtag TruthTable. Black women, did y'all know that TruthTable has a Black women's discipleship group on Facebook now? Maybe we get a watch party together and watch Open Wounds and discuss it. Make sure you follow TruthTable on Facebook and join our group today. Feel free to invite your homegirls. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Truth's Table, and email us your thoughts at info at truthstable.com. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Truth's Table also has a Patreon account, so you can now send love offerings to patreon.com slash truthstable, or feel free to bless us at our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash truthstable. This show is made possible in part by Pottery Studios. 
Visit Pottery.com for the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for this show is Joshua Heath. Our executive producer is Bo York. And we have been your hosts, Ephemini, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth's Table. Bye.